I was a little bit of an unusual child way back when. An early capitalist. I started when I was seven, my first successful little enterprise. It was kind of a cross between a candy shop, a Baskin Robbins, and a little Starbucks cafe. Lasted for 11 years till I got into college. And with the money I raised, I capitalized a little political marketing products business so I could make money while I engaged in politics. Well, I noticed that big business, companies a lot bigger than mine, seemed to be doing a lot of damage around the world. So I became a social advocate, and saving the environment was my big cause. And from that sense of power I had by being a capitalist, even if it's a micro-capitalist, I had to really wonder, is capitalism going to destroy us, or is it going to save us? I'm Bill Shireman, and this is a moment of BS, an opportunity for the silenced majority of us, the 70% of us who can actually get along and solve our problems, to take ourselves off mute and join the herd so that we begin to shape the future intelligently rather than letting the future be shaped by extremists on the far left and right and by a political industry that thrives by their war. I became fascinated by the idea of externalities. Costs that were outside the market system, like pollution, that imposed costs on other people or on the future. And if we somehow didn't either regulate or otherwise internalize these costs, they would grow out of control and destroy us. My ideal alternative is to embed the costs of pollution, these external costs, with something like the Oregon Bottle Bill, a deposit law that motivated organs to clean up their trash and recycle 80% of their cans and bottles way back in 1970. I was amazed at how effective that little law for a nickel deposit was in closing the loop on this throwaway economy. And I figured we could do that for almost any kind of pollution out there. Make sure that we're paying a fee for it, because otherwise it's an externality and the private marketplace will drive more and more of them because the marketplace wants to get costs either reduced or shifted to somebody else. And pollution shifts those costs to other people and to the future. So I've been on something of a mission to internalize all these externalities that place our planet and our survival at risk. And I've noticed that there's basically four ways to internalize externalities. The first way is by regulation. The government imposes rules on the marketplace that say that those who create pollution, for example, have to reduce it. And the costs of those regulations are borne by the people who buy the products from those companies. So the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, these huge federal laws and regulations were imposed particularly when we had a few major polluters that we had to deal with. It's really tough to regulate smaller producers from a federal level. Most of the remaining air pollution and water pollution comes from small generators these days. And that's why we've had to move to voluntary, sometimes state and local regulations to control them. But we haven't been very successful at that. The big regulations have become big business. People make billions of dollars through the enforcement of the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. 
whole companies and industries form themselves around these acts, and that gives the acts a kind of political stability so that we have policies that don't change every year. That's a good thing, except that over time, technology changes and culture changes, and those regulations don't typically change with them because there are so many vested interests that are making money from whatever the current rules are that they don't want to have them changed. The second way to internalize externalities is with prices. That's why in fifth grade, seeing the success of the Oregon Bottle Bill, I thought, I want to make sure that happens here in California. And I kind of made a pact with myself that I was going to make that happen. I started charging deposits on the cans and bottles of sodas and so on that I was selling. So people returned them, and I went down to the Fremont High School Recycling Center and smashed them to bits. We put deposits on tires and on motor oil and on computers and electronics to help create a circular economy where we recycled their components. We worked with industries to establish what they called extended producer responsibility to help companies collectively reduce, manage, and recover the waste from paints and plastics and packaging and electronics and a variety of other products. These prices were masterful in how effectively they reduced pollution and did it pretty efficiently. The most efficient way to do it was to establish something like a carbon price, which was the preferred and certainly the most effective way to drive down carbon emissions. And with similar so-called cap-and-trade systems throughout Canada, in the eastern United States, in California, Washington, Oregon, and much of Europe. Cap-and-trade hasn't worked as well as a simple price on carbon, but it passes a lot of money around to various interest groups, so it has more staying power, it appears. A third way to internalize externalities, and listen to this because this is where you have power as a consumer that's way outsized to the role you play in the marketplace. Internalizing externalities through the marketplace, particularly the retail and consumer brands marketplace. A generation or so ago, a group of colleagues of mine brought together Rainforest Action Network and Greenpeace, along with Mitsubishi and other companies involved in the timber trade. And using their market power, we worked with them to develop supply chain specifications so that the retailers and the brands were asking their entire supply chain to stop buying from companies that were engaged in destructive forest practices and buy more from the companies that were operating more sustainably. That process spread quickly to 400 consumer and retail brands and key companies in their supply chain, and it revolutionized the global marketplace for timber. Now, we are still quickly destroying the globe's natural forests, but these market specifications have improved practices across the board. In fact, they have also evolved into a system of what we now call ESG standards, or environmental and social governance standards and expectations for companies. Retailers, consumer brands, and investors in particular now, when they are considering whether they're going to buy from or invest in companies across the supply chain, want to see their ESG performance. They want to make sure that these companies are engaged in sustainable business practices and socially responsible business practices. 
retailers and brands do it not only to be a good corporate citizen, but also because if they've got big polluters in their supply chain, they're the ones that get blamed for it. They're the ones that get targeted by the media and by activists, and they want to clean that stuff out of their supply chain. Investors similarly want to clean that stuff out of their investment chain because a lot of individual investors don't want their money going to destroy the planet. On top of that, the companies that invest in ESG tend to be better performers, the theory being that they are simply more connected to their marketplace. They're more watchful of evolving cultural and marketplace and employee expectations. And so these companies that do measure their ESG performance tend to make more money. But these standards are about to be politicized. Political strategists have seized upon this as a huge profit opportunity to turn ESG into, they say, the imposition of progressive wokeism onto corporations so that their employees and customers can be indoctrinated in progressive ideas. So they'll care about things like, you know, climate and the environment and social justice and equality and diversity and all these kinds of things. Now, it's true that all those considerations are often included in ESG measurement. But I will testify straight off that the far left is no fan of ESG. When it comes to imposing their cultural expectations on corporations and on consumers, they want to do it much more directly. ESG is essentially a market response to that cultural norm. So when you see the Wall Street Journal and Fox News proffering fear and anger and panic on the part of the conservative community against ESG, don't buy into it. ESG is hardly perfect, but it's not a plot of the left. It's got plenty of flaws as a system for internalizing those externalities, but it's something to improve on. So... How do we improve on it? Well, that brings me to the fourth way that we internalize externalities, through culture. America is a very young culture, and we settled on this mass production system of manufacturing in the 1950s in part because we didn't have a pre-existing industrial base that we had to adapt from. So we were able to build giant industries to mass produce the products that could overcome the Depression and the military equipment that could defeat the Nazis in the 1940s. We just kept on growing that through the 50s and 60s and 70s, all the way to today, pausing in the 70s to introduce the digital economy, which in many ways is the successor to the industrial. The culture that emerged from that way of production was a culture that emphasized uniformity, standardization, replication, extraction, and throw away everything. That all served the cause of prosperity because it made it quicker to mass manufacture, distribute, consume, and dispose of the products and services that made us the most prosperous nation on the planet. But it didn't take us long to notice all the externalities from this linear throughput throwaway economy. Huge amounts of destruction where we extracted resources from the planet. Huge amounts of waste when we disposed of it back in the planet. Air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution along the way. Then there were social costs as well. 
Primarily male blue-collar workers organized unions to collectively bargain since they could all be exploited if they were negotiating individually with their employers, but they could negotiate for a better deal if they did it as a group. That raised the cost of manufacturing here in the United States, and so we began to export those manufacturing jobs to other countries around the world. That spread material prosperity everywhere, but it also spread extraction and pollution everywhere. It raised living standards in every country where it entered, but it also transformed traditional cultures to be part of this industrial machine. Whole countries and regions of the planet became specialized in extracting particular kinds of resources or for providing massive numbers of workers. Oddly enough, the largest capitalist country in the world, the United States, came to depend on the largest communist country in the world, China, as a source of extremely cheap, well-organized labor. Communism turned out to be not so much the liberation of the worker as it was a way to keep workers busy generating more products for the richer countries in the world and gradually raising their own living standards. From all of this emerged globally a single, coextensive, globalized economy that was primarily industrial in form. In other words, it was manufacturing-based, and mass manufacturing was what generated the material prosperity, but it also reduced cultural diversity and standardized humanity to a degree that we had never seen before. But nature or the marketplace had an answer for that as well, and that was the digital economy. As we learned to embed knowledge into every product and service we had using microchips, our products ceased to become bigger and bigger every year. They became smarter and smarter every year. And instead of standardization being the rule, suddenly diversification was more profitable. And all of our culture began to reflect these new imperatives. This all was a tremendous strain on middle America who had lost much of the manufacturing base and the support for traditional values that were more associated with the farming and industrial era. The coasts tended to move toward a more global, cosmopolitan, digital culture, a community of people who are tied to our digital devices, as middle America is as well now, responding to cues. So now, rather than one global market economy with a single global culture, we have a proliferation of microcultures that collect together people with similar ideas and demographics and preferences that are all reinforced by their digital communications. And we're all kind of stuck in these individual echo chambers inside community echo chambers, inside national and global red and blue echo chambers, inside a larger echo chamber defined by these algorithms that maximize sales of the products and services that hold our economy together. So even as we've begun to internalize all these externalities, we're getting more externalities than ever. And everybody notices it and everybody blames somebody else for it. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we are going to transform our culture and we are in the process of doing that now. How are we doing it? For a hint, I like to look to nature. All of nature, all complex living systems follow similar phases of evolution. Birth, when new species or new ideas enter into an ecosystem. Growth, as those expand quickly, 
as what conservation biologists call R species, species that grow and reproduce very quickly. Then as they reach their physical limits, the advantage shifts to K strategists, species that are more complex and that evolve structurally, embedding more knowledge rather than just reproducing massive numbers. And it is those kinds of ecosystems that last for long periods of time because they are much more adaptive than the fast growth industrial eras. So if we allow ourselves to move forward, I believe we are entering a period of human culture where standardized, uniform, mass-produced people and products are quickly used up and thrown away to a culture where smaller, more diversified, specialized, and interdependent people and cultures turn out to be a source of different kinds of value than just material prosperity. Maybe a source of connection, purpose, hope, and love. So that's what I believe is in our future. But we're resisting this path of nature's evolution by trying to extend the industrial economy way past the carrying capacity of this planet. The time has come to begin to shift our culture and our own behaviors to accept one another in all of our diversity and complexity, to see how we all fit together in this new human ecosystem, and to ensure that all those externalities that threaten our survival are adopted by our culture are embedded in our price system, are preferred through our marketplace, and are reinforced with appropriate regulations. That's not how we save nature. That's how we let nature save us. And that is not BS. But I am, and I look forward to hearing your ideas. (laughs) 